My name is Josh Walters. I'm the campus pastor here at the Mount Pleasant campus, one of the teaching pastors here at Seacoast, and we are so glad that you're here to worship with us today. I want to welcome you if you're joining us online or in one of the venues or at an off-site campus, maybe stuck in a cabin in Colorado or an airport in Atlanta, wherever you happen to be. We are glad that you are along for the ride as well. I want to give a special shout out to our Manning campus. Last week I had a meeting with some upstate campus pastors at the new Manning house, which is a house that was donated to the church in downtown Manning, that as a church they rallied around gutting this thing. They added an open kind of large meeting room onto the back of it. I believe they've already hosted a memorial service there. It's just going to be a great spot in the middle of downtown for students or small groups, a number of different things. So here at Mount Pleasant at each of our campuses, let's let them know we're excited about all God's going to do. There in Manning, man, what a great, great, great gift to the church. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been in a series called Messy Faith, Finding Our Story in Esther. Esther is actually one of my, my favorite books. There's a lot of controversy over the book among scholars because it doesn't mention the name of God anywhere in the book. It doesn't mention prayer. It's not quoted or referenced anywhere else in scripture uh, to give it increased credibility. But man, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's full of, of good guys and bad guys. There's sudden plot changes, a surprising ending. If there is a book of the Bible that was scripted to be a made-for-TV movie, this is the one. Uh, it's just a fun read. There actually is a VeggieTales movie about it, so you could check that out for further learning. Uh, it will bless you. Uh, so, week one, we talked about the making of a hero. Pastor Greg took a few principles from the book of Esther uh, that we can take in partnering with God in the seeking and saving and redeeming of a lost and broken world. Last week, we did a study on the favor of God. All throughout the book, we read about this favor that rested on Esther's life. We talked about what is the favor of God, who gets it, and how can we walk in it. And today, we're going to be doing a bit of a, a character study on one of my favorite people in the story. But before we do that, why don't we take a minute and uh, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this weekend. We praise you, God, for this book, and we thank you that you are a God who faithfully uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God, I pray that you would meet us today exactly where we are in our, in our faith and in our journey with you, God, that we would be reminded that you are a God who, who loves us faithfully and has incredible plans and dreams for our lives. May we, even in a small way, step into all that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I want to start off with a question. How many of you have ever played Would You Rather? Would You Rather? Okay, great. So it's not as much of a, of a game, I guess, as it is a silly conversation starter, but before Katie and I moved to Charleston, I was a youth pastor in Columbia, and I feel like just about any trip we took students on or any time we were out with students and there was a lull in the conversation, some ridiculous Would You Rather question would be put on the table. Some of them are just, you know, kind of make you think, and I would say are good. Things like, would you rather travel back in time and meet your ancestors, or travel into the future and meet your great, 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 great grandkids? It's like, oh, man, I don't know. My middle name's Wayne. My dad's name's Wayne. That means wagon builder. I've always been curious if my ancestors had some wagon building skills, you know, that I don't know about. <clears throat> I think that's probably what I would choose. Some of them are, are, are a little more gross, like, would you rather have the crumbs from Cheetos around your mouth for the rest of your life or taste buds on your fingertips? You don't know, do you? That's a tough question. <laughs> for real, would you rather walk around looking like a bozo or have to taste everything you touch? Some of y'all be saying, I don't know why Pastor Josh doesn't shake my hand anymore. <laughs> like, because I know where you've been. I'm not shaking, I'm not shaking your hand. <laughs> So I want to start us off with a, with a would-you-rather question to kind of push us in the direction that I want us to go. And this is the question. 
Would you rather be famous now and forgotten when you're dead or feel forgotten now and be famous when you're dead? All right, I'm going to ask you one more time, then I want you to ask your neighbor, see, see what you think. Would you rather be famous now and forgotten when you're dead or feel forgotten now and be famous when you're dead? Go ahead, see what they think. This would be the point where you ask your neighbor, for those of you that aren't doing that. Good, yeah, good job. All right, wheels are turning, waking up a little bit. I like what I'm seeing here. All right, I think for me, as I think about that question, I would have to go with the latter. I, I would choose to feel forgotten now, but be famous when I'm dead. And, and this is a little bit of the thought process. I'm thinking, okay, would I rather live the kind of life now that whether by accomplishment or success, uh, the money that I make, maybe the following that I have, that culture would deem me as famous, but when I die, my story essentially end. Uh, it wouldn't echo into eternity or go on to impact the lives of others. Or would I rather live the kind of life now that even though I might feel forgotten because of the way that I talk to my wife and treat my kids, the way that I approach the work that I put my hands to, the way that I care for the people around me, that in some way when I die, my story would be part of a bigger story, a greater story that would, that would ripple on into eternity and kind of reverb into the souls of people. For me, it feels a little bit like a legacy question. And that I want to know that in some way, at the end of my days, all of the, the good and the bad, the successes and the failures, the parenting, uh, the work, the things that I, I've put my hands to, I want to know that they mattered for something. That God's used them for his glory, for his good in a greater way than I might be aware of. You know, in answering that question, I feel like the word that I, that I get hung up on is famous. Especially in our culture, we hear the word famous and we think wildly successful in some way, whether it's because of an accomplishment or, you know, something we've done or maybe someone that we are. Culturally, as a people, we identify kind of the best of the best, the the famous in every area, and we elevate them to a place that's almost unattainable. Think about in, in basketball, for example, who would you say, and this is a little crowd participation here, is arguably one of the, the best basketball players currently playing basketball? LeBron James, everybody watches SportsCenter and agrees. You know? LeBron James, if you watch him on TV or if, even if you follow him on Instagram, kind of his social media name is King James. Uh, he's positioned himself, you know, kind of on the throne of basketball greatness. I thought about making some kind of cheesy Bible joke here, like he could have at least called himself New King James or something like that, but y'all not really feeling that. Okay, I won't use it next service. Just throwing it out there. Uh, but we identify the best of the best. It's the reason that we like shows like The Voice or American Idol, um, because they're normal people, just like you and me, stay-at-home moms, business owners, bus drivers, bartenders who have this incredible gift, this incredible skill. They audition for this opportunity to be the voice. They're somehow sifted through the masses until the point comes where we're sitting on our couch watching them on a stage. They knock it out of the park, and we're like, this is the voice, you know, it's like incredible, that was awesome, but for the majority of us, we'll never have that opportunity, whether it's to be the best in basketball or business or to win the voice, our lives are just much more ordinary than that. If you were to see that question kind of through the lens of the book of Esther, 99.9% of us, if any, will ever live her story whether because of our natural beauty or favor with all people or opportunity or position. 
in our community. We're given the opportunity to influence people to make a decision that in some way impacts their story and forever changes them as a nation. It's just not going to be the case for us. Our lives are much more ordinary. So going back to our original question, if I would rather feel forgotten now but be famous when I'm, when I'm dead, I, it makes me question, is it possible for me to live an ordinary life? For me to be a pretty regular guy, yet in some ways still live an extraordinary story. For God to show up in the midst of my mess, my ordinary days filled with highs and lows and problems and people and successes, that he could use all of that to make an extraordinary contribution uh, to his work in our world. Today we're going to look at a guy much like you and me uh, that is very ordinary. As we read through the book of Esther, uh, we're led to believe that he's a single guy. We don't read anything about a wife or kids. We don't know that, that he was outspoken or charismatic or well-spoken even. We don't know that he came from money or that he has money or that he holds a position in the community that other people would aspire to. Uh, we don't know that he's ruggedly handsome or even cute for that matter. Uh, the book doesn't say anything about the single ladies of Susa you know, lining up to, uh, to go out with him. That's where the story took place, by the way, in Susa. From every account that we can tell, he is a a remarkably regular, ordinary guy. Yet without him, the book of Esther would not have taken place. His name is Mordecai, and he's the guy guy that adopted Esther. Just to give you a little bit of of context for his life and where we are in the story up to this point, um, the people of Israel have been pushed to live in exile. And so Mordecai has gone out and he's settled in Susa. About a hundred years prior to this, God sent a prophet named Micah to come to the people of Israel and let them know that God was disgusted with their worship and their sacrifices. As a nation of people, they would gather just like this and worship. They would, they would bring offerings to the Lord. They would participate in the Sabbath. They had a lot of the same calendar. Their, their values and DNA all looked very similar, but their hearts were not connected with all of their actions. And so God said, I'm going to allow you to be pushed into exile, meaning that no longer will you gather and worship as a people. You're going to have to leave the home uh, that you may have built, the business that you may have started, the neighbors that you may have grown up beside, the best friends that you've kind of run with up to this point. You're going to be pushed into exile, and you're going to have to own your faith. And if you want to live lives that are honorable to me, If you want to be a people that are pleasing to me, then there's three things that I expect of you. And Micah communicated them there at the top of your outline sheet. In Micah 6, 8, it says this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So Mordecai here living in exile, a regular dude, in difficult circumstances, is doing the best that he can to honor God with his life. How many of you can identify with that? But here we see without him, the, the book of Esther would not have happened. So today I want us to look at just three, three lessons from his life. Situations and circumstances that we saw him walk out, attempting to be obedient to the command of God on his life that allowed him to live an extraordinary Story. The first of which there in your outline, ordinary people can live extraordinary stories if they, number one, do justice. Everybody say justice. Justice. Practically, justice is doing the right thing regardless of what it costs you. Katie and I have been married for about 12 years, 
And uh, for the first five or six years of our marriage, I would do our taxes. And every year, the kind of picture would look the same. I'd go to the store and buy TurboTax or one of those softwares. I'd come home and have the W-2s and our giving statements and college student loan things that are never going to go away. And, you know, all that stuff kind of spread out on the table. And, and I would open up the laptop. And about that time, I'd start sweating a little bit. And I'd log on to the deal and start entering some numbers and start getting a re- little bit of reflux. And uh, after about five minutes, this headache would, you know, just come smacking down. I'm holding my head, reading and rereading these questions. Uh, I'd come to a point where I would enter in some numbers and push a button and the return would go up two or $3,000. Then I would push another button and the return would go down two or $3,000. And um, this is going to be a shock to you, but I'm not the smartest, the smartest guy. And uh, I'm going to tell you which button I would like to push. <laughs> you know? I want to push the button where it goes up two or $3,000, but I knew if I do this and somebody comes knocking on my door and says, Mr. Walters, we're going to need that money back, I'm going to have to say, that money's gone. You know, like, <laughs> we don't have it anymore. You know? It just wasn't a mistake that I could make. I knew for the brother to be able to sleep at night, I was going to have to hire someone to do my taxes. I was going to have to do the right thing regardless of what it cost me because it was way too stressful for me to carry on my own. Well, Mordecai shows us at several places here on the very beginning of this story uh, one of the many ways that it looks like to do justice, the first of which is chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. It says this. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Tadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. I'm thinking, my goodness, of all things to be said about you in Scripture. It's not even fair. Last verse there. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter uh, when her father and mother had died. All right, so here, remember, we have a single guy who's living in a foreign land who has assumed the responsibility. He's, he's taken on the mantle of becoming a father. Guys, I want you to, and we don't, we don't know, it just says he brought her up. We don't know how old she was when he became her father, if she was a baby or a toddler or a teen, we, we just don't know. But guys, I want you to go back to the last place, last season in your life where you were a single guy. Maybe it was fresh out of college, uh, maybe you were like me and you got married in college because you couldn't wait. Uh, maybe it's now, recently. If you don't have kids or haven't been around kids, when you, when you kind of hold them or take care of them for the first time, you would think that someone was handing you like luggage, you know, was like, hey, can you hold Ruby? And guys are like, yeah, I'll hold it. It's like, it's a she, not an it, you know, it's just like, as a man, we need the the nurturing love of a woman to help us even know how to best care for a baby, much less a little, a little baby girl, you know, so we got a single guy in a foreign land who's taken on the mantle of being a father. It goes on in verse 15 there on the outlines to say this, say this. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abigail, to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. So here we're told twice on the front end of this story, it's important enough for us to know that they mentioned multiple times that, hey, he adopted this little girl. 
If I were to think about kind of the posture of his heart through some New Testament passages that we might know, the verses like, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. You know, there, there was a degree of sacrifice, a degree of commitment uh, that, that he had to walk in in order to be a, a dad, a father to a new, a new little girl. You know, depending on the translation that you read, some, some Bibles say act, ju- ask, act justly. Uh, so do justice or act justly. In either event, what God was telling him was, I don't just want you to know the difference between right and wrong. I don't want you to just be able to inform people of the difference between good and evil. I want you to put your hands to righting the wrongs around you. I want you to, to invest your time. I want you to give your creative energy, your money. Give yourself towards, towards doing justice. It, it makes me question in my life or, or in our lives, what does it look like practically for us to be a people who do justice? Uh, it could be in small things like your, your taxes, you know, and doing the right things at your table when nobody's around. It could be that maybe you have a kindergartner and you've gone to their, their class a few times and noticed that you're kind of the only parent who shows up for lunch. And whether it's because of the district the school's in or maybe just the class itself, some of the kids are just struggling with reading. And so you think, man, I'm going to sign up to be a reading buddy. I've kind of gotten a heart for these kids. I'm just going to show up and love on them. If, by the way, you're passionate about kindergartners and literacy, then you need to serve an Abel Walters class. Um, really cute, charming, and spell his name, and that's about it right now. <laughs> We're working on it. Maybe it's in an area like, like hunger. And, and you've noticed that there's people around you uh, in your workplace or in, in your neighborhood or wherever it might be uh, that, that struggle to have the income to eat. And you go to bed at night thinking about them, conversations ringing in your head, and that's just not okay with you. I actually got an email this week about a guy who started a hot dog ministry downtown. And I was like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. You know, I love a hot dog. I'm going to be all up in that ministry. <laughs> but it wasn't for me. It was for... for for other fellows uh, struggling for food. Maybe it's in, in poverty. You know, you've, you've seen folks downtown and you may lay in bed at night and knowing how cold it is outside and, and their faces come to mind. Uh, they seem to fill your prayers and be heavy on your heart. There are people group that you see that it's very possible that other people don't see. Maybe it's, it's single moms. Maybe you're the friend of or neighbor of or coworker to a single mom. And just as you think about the busyness of your day, uh, you can't help but wonder, man, from the packing of lunches and getting bags ready for the next day to getting the kids up and getting them off to school and managing sports and sick days and income, they, they just don't ever get a break. I need a break all the time. I just, I don't know how they do it. Maybe they're a, a people group that you see that it's very possible that other people don't see. That God might be leading you to, to stand in the gap, to do justice in some way, whatever that would look like, to invest your time and energy into, into lightening their load. For some of us, maybe it's a next step similar to that of Mordecai, whether it's in foster care or adoption. I did a little research in preparing for this message and learned that currently there are 345 kids in the foster care system in the Tri-County area. So Charleston, Dorchester, and Berkeley County. I don't know at what point it becomes a crisis, but 345 kids. If you were to be burdened by that and say, I want to resolve that problem, you know, and, and did a cost-benefit analysis of if we were to bring a child into our home, 
we would have 344 kids in the foster care system. I just don't know that it would, it would make that big of a difference. But for us as a church, I did a little thinking about, okay, if the Mount Pleasant campus, if the Dream Center, if West Ashley and Somerville and James Island were to pray through and say, you know what, we want to be a church that resolves the foster care issue in the Tri-County area, it would take 3% of Seacoasters. Can you imagine what the, what the headlines would read there that Seacoast resolves the foster care crisis? Not by all of us taking in a kid, but by 3% of us responding to a call that God has on our lives. And man, that's the beauty of the church, whether it's in literacy or adoption and foster care or in caring for single moms. Any, any one of us as a person or a family can make a small contribution. But when we as a church commit to being a people who do justice, when we commit to, to giving ourselves fully to the people, to the faces, to the stories that we see around us, all of a sudden the blessing that we read at the end of the service, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more. Because God is watching my life. He sees me on the days that I feel forgotten. He sees you on the hard days. And he's not waiting until we get it together to use us, but he's saying, if you'll do justice, if you'll step up and respond right now to the needs that you see, I'll do remarkable things through you. That's exactly what he did through Mordecai. I can't imagine what he was thinking or feeling as a young man in exile taking in a little girl. But because of his willingness to sacrifice, to, to lay down his life for another, God used him to script an incredible story. Second thing we can learn from him there, ordinary people can live extraordinary stories if they, number two, there on your outlines, love kindness. Everybody say kindness. Kindness. Kindness is simply being as kind to others as God has been to you. Some translations, they say, they say love mercy. And the Hebrew word used there is literally hased, and it means God's faithful covenant love. Passages like Romans 5, 8 come to mind that say this, for God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Some translations say while we were enemies of God, meaning while we as a people stood in direct opposition to everything that he was about. It wasn't at a time where we deserved it out of our faithful worship. It wasn't at a time where we deserved it because of the way we treated each other. While we stood in opposition to who he was as a person, it was at that point he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. To love kindness, to be motivated by mercy means that it changes the way that we act. Up to this point in the story, Mordecai has adopted Esther. His, his daughter has been taken bachelor style to the harem of the king. Uh, she's gone on a hometown date. She's been invited to the fantasy suite. Not that I watched the show. Uh, she's been given the final rose and the king has asked her to marry him, to become queen. And if I'm Mordecai, I'm thinking, well, I'm glad you finally realized she's the one, but I've always thought that she's the one. We read in the story that every morning he would wake up, strap on his sandals, and he would walk back and forth, the story tells us, uh, at the courtyard of the harem. He wasn't allowed to go into the gate, but he had always been involved in Esther's life up to this point. When she went to the harem, he said, do not tell them you're a Jew. And the story tells us that she did exactly as Mordecai had instructed her, just as she had always done. Up to this point, he'd been very involved in counsel and discipline and parenting and play and all of those areas to now when she was gone, he didn't quite know what to do other than to walk back and forth just to check on her and make sure she was doing all right. Peeping in the gate, trying to look over the wall 
to make sure all was well. Well, it's on one of those days where he's on a walk that he's near the king's gate and he overhears a conversation. There on your outlines. It's in Esther 2, 21 through 23. It says this. During the time that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. Isn't that nice? All of this was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. So Mordecai is in a foreign land. This pagan king has paraded his daughter to where now she's in the palace. He can't go in to see her. I overhear a plot outside the walls that someone is planning to assassinate him. And I personally, if I'm Mordecai, don't know that I'm not thinking good. He deserves it. That there's not angerness or frustration within me that I would overhear a plot and then not just hold on to it to think, well, well, good. Up to this point, I've been trapped out here. I can't even go see my daughter. I'm glad somebody that can get in is wanting to do something. But see, the, the tension that Mordecai was walking in was between the command that he was given from Malachi to do justice, to love kindness, but then also in the promise that he was given from another prophet in Jeremiah chapter 29, there on the back of your outline sheets, See, once the people of Israel had gone into exile, God sent another prophet with instruction for them and and wrote them a letter. And this is what it says, portion of it. Uh, Jeremiah 29, verses four through seven. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those that I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is the same passage that goes on to, to reference the verse that so many of us know of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So he's standing between the, you know, the command, the call of God to love kindness, to be motivated by mercy, and the promise of God that if you'll seek the, the prosperity of the city, if you'll do the right thing, if you'll pray for it and serve it in such a way uh, for the city's prosperity, then you too will prosper. So when he hears about this plot, regardless of how he felt, he responded to do what was right. He overhears Big Thana. I can't help but think, you know, if a king is going to put two dudes at the gate to guard it, he's going to put some diesel guys, you know? It tells us that guy's name was Big Thana. I can't ham- wonder if his real name was Thana and they just put Big, like Big Josh, like some of y'all call me. Um, <laughs> why are you laughing? <laughs> he didn't even think about what it was going to cost him. He didn't think about, you know, if I report this and, and word gets back that Mordecai tried to rat on the two guards, am I going to be the one with the target on my back? He knew that there was a plot to assassinate the king and he was willing to step in the gap regardless of what it might cost him. Uh, and, and let them know that this was going to go down. He, he loved kindness. He was motivated by mercy. Lastly, ordinary people can live extraordinary stories. When number three there on your outlines, they walk humbly with God. 
They walk humbly with God. Everybody say humbly. Humbly. Practically, that means following God as best you can. Several big assumptions there in that statement, the first of which is in following God. If we're going to follow God, we have to posture ourselves as sheep following the shepherd. That in no area of our life, whether it's in our, our marriage or our parenting or our business or our finances or the way that we use our time, would we consciously or subconsciously walk out our lives in a way that would communicate, I think I got this, you know? But that in following God, we acknowledge that that he's on the throne in every area of our lives, that he is number one, you know, that he's the leader, that in all of the decisions we make, that in the way that we approach our day, we're saying, okay, God, what, what do you have for me today, you know? What does your word say about this area or this issue? Because I'm going to allow it to drive how I respond to it. Second area, following God as best you can. As best you can just means that there's some areas of scripture that are very black and white. You know, be patient, uh, it's very clear in Scripture. So if you need to pray about, should I be patient with my kids? The answer is yes. You know, you can pray about something else. It's very clear. Be patient. Be humble. Be gentle. Rid your heart of anger, rage, and malice. Should I have rage? No. You know, Scripture is very clear. Rip it out. You shouldn't have it in your life. But there's other areas that aren't, aren't nearly as black and white. I got an email this week about legalizing marijuana, asking... Uh, you know, as a believer, how do I respond? I even quoted the Moses running to the burning bush. I'm like, come on, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> you know it was not that kind of bush. You know? <laughs> that don't even make sense. I think it's pretty clear in Scripture how we as believers uh, should respond. But in either case, it doesn't speak to it directly. So as best we can do, we've got to read God's Word, we've got to pray about it, and we've got to take a step of faith to how, he, how we believe that, that He's leading us to respond. That we wouldn't just assume that we know the answer, but humbly we come before God to say, okay, what's your word on this? Whether it's, it's black and white in scripture, whether it seems to be unclear and other people may be making other decisions, I want to follow what you have for me. If that's in the schooling of your kids, are, are our kids supposed to be homeschooled or are our kids supposed to go to public school? I know some amazing families that, that, that go with both roads. For us, we felt like God was telling us to keep our kids home in fourth grade. <laughs> so when you have five kids, one of the ways they're getting some mommy and daddy time is that each one of them are going to stay home in fourth grade. We're hoping before they hit that cool kid phase, we can work some, uh, some focused character time in. But, but it's what we feel like God's called us to. In every area of your life that you would question, okay, God, what do you have for us here? What do you have for me here? What does your word say? I'm going to humble myself before you, posture myself in a way to follow you in each of these areas. We saw Mordecai do that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says this, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All of the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. See, this was confusing for me when I first read it because every situation that he's been in up to this point, I see him walking out the command that God gave him through Malachi to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly. He's done the hard things to, to walk in obedience to God. And here we have King Xerxes who's commanded everyone to bow down to his number two man, Haman, and Mordecai saying, I'm not willing to do it. It's kind of a messy point 
in the story and it's a messy issue and that I don't think we'll find a black and white answer. As I read about it, a lot of scholars kind of responded that he should have bowed. A lot of folks said that he, he shouldn't have bowed. Up to this point in the story, we believe the Jews have been invited to return from exile and go back to Israel. He's stuck in Susa with his daughter, the queen, in a foreign land under a pagan king. He knew that at one point God was disgusted with him because there was a disconnect between the posture of his heart and his worship. So now he has a pagan guy asking him to bow down to him, and Mordecai is saying, man, I'm not, I'm not doing it, you know? Surely in Susa, Mordecai wasn't the only Jew around. But the scripture doesn't tell us about any other Jews that wouldn't bow, just Mordecai. The thought that came to mind in, in reading through this story and thinking about him as a man is that when we humble ourselves before God, it changes our posture before people. When we humble ourselves before God, it changes our posture before people. For Mordecai, that didn't need to look like bowing down and just surrendering to what the king had asked him to do. Because when he humbled himself before God, God gave him a boldness to say, as a Jew, I'm not going to bow down to a pagan king. He was given the boldness to take a hard step, to stand out, to look and be a peculiar people. You know, ultimately, as believers, it's what we're, it's what we're called to. You know, that we wouldn't look like everyone else. It doesn't mean that we show out and make a way when there is no way based on how we want to respond in any given situation. But it does mean when we've humbled ourselves before God, there may come moments where he calls you to do things that make you stand out just a little bit. Things that that aren't the common cultural response, but that you can have a boldness to stand in faith when you've humbled yourself before him to respond in whatever way that he calls you to. You know, as I think back on the guys that, that have made an impact in my life, I think about my dad. He uh, really modeled for me what it looks like to have a solid work ethic. I mean, he just gave all of himself to, to the things that he put his hands to so that it was as best as it could possibly be. He never missed a sporting event for me, uh, whatever kind it was. He was always there to help coach, tell me how I could up my game a little bit and celebrate, you know, the, the good things that had happened. Think about guys like Dean Howell, who was my football coach and, and math teacher. I hated him most of high school because uh, he was always on me. Y'all laugh because you know how that is. He was just on me. He saw something in me and he invested in me and he called it out of me. Uh, but man, I didn't realize for, for years later until I came to Christ just the, the love he had for me and investment he was making in me because it was, it was tough. Think about when Katie and I first moved to Charleston, Mac and Cindy Lake started a small group. And man, we were in a tough season in marriage. I had never needed a small group so bad. And we were the worst small group attenders in that we'd be the first ones to show up and the last ones to leave. They'd be putting on pajamas and I'm still asking questions, you know. Hey, one more thing. Wait, hold on. It was awful. I think about guys like Pastor Greg who uh, just knowing me and my story, which says a lot about his faith, would, would let me serve here and give us proximity to his life uh, and, and really cast vision for me as a leader, husband, father of what it looks like uh, to, to serve lifelong in ministry and have a healthy family and ministry. You know, each of those guys are, are far from perfect. They're not flashy. Uh, in no way would, would the world uh, attribute them as, as famous or, or stand out in that regards. They're, they're ordinary men but they're, they're each men of action. They've done justice. When they've seen the wrongs around them, when they've seen the wrongs in my life, they've been men to step up and stand in the gap, to call me to more, to address the, 
sin in my life or stuff that I was walking through to sharpen me and make me a better person. To love kindness. Each of them are, are motivated by mercy. To model God's faithful covenant love to me. That when I've disappointed them or frustrated them or dishonored them in some way, that they don't bail on me. They step up to say, man, you, you really hurt me here. Or you dropped the ball in this area to call me to more. Each of them have walked humbly with God to help give me a vision of, of what I want my life to look like 20 years down the road. What's it going to look like for me to be a godly husband or, or father or leader in some way? You know, the reality for each of us is that very few of us, if any, are called to be an Esther. But all of us are called to be a Mordecai. That by our commitment to do justice, to love mercy and walk humbly with God, he would use us to not only change the world around us, but allow us to live an extraordinary story along the way. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the book of Esther. We praise you, God, for uh, the life of Mordecai and your willingness to use ordinary people to live extraordinary stories. God, I pray as we head into response time that your spirit would uh, just begin stirring our hearts. God, I, I know that you didn't ask Mordecai to wait until he got his life together or had attended church for a while or had a series of quiet times before he started doing justice. Uh, you called him, God, to stand in the gap, to address the wrongs around him, to meet the needs of the people and stories and faces, uh, God, that he saw. And we're thankful for the way that he modeled that. To love kindness, to do the right thing even when it hurt him. To walk humbly with you. God, I pray that I would be a man, that we would be a people whose hearts are all in. That there would be no disconnect between the people that we desire, that we dream to be, and the people that we actually are. So God, please just uh, be present with us now. Stir our hearts. May we take a big, bold step towards you. Come away having encountered you. In Jesus' name, amen.